0: to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, I'll be reading Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, merciful, wonderful hope Filling and sustaining word. O Father, may all the cares of this world, serious and frivolous, fall from us so that our attention is upon you, upon your Holy Scripture. Oh Lord, work it in us by your Spirit. That we be a joyfully steadfast, hope filled people that points to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, last week we covered most of this text and we saw in verses 13 to 18 that God promised blessing to the heirs of salvation and in order to bring strong encouragement to us, He swore an oath on that which is the most valuable, the most Precious, the highest thing possible, which happens to be himself. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And he goes on in verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to us here today, The heirs of the promise, he wanted to show us the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold firm. To the hope that's set before us. So, first, just make sure we see it. Who's the we that we might have strong hope? First, notice how he says it. We who have. bled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And for the hope, what that is, the way he uses it, it's faith. It's what that thing is that saves a sinner. It's, it, but it's the future aspect of faith. We have faith in the past. We have faith in what happened on the cross and in the resurrection. That's past, I believe. But then there's those things that have not yet happened but have been promised. And often the Scripture will use the word for that faith. Hope, it's trusting in His promises. Now, right here in the text, saving faith is pictured as Fleeing for refuge. Now, this is meant by this author, as he so often does with Old Testament historical events. And as he sees them as types, pictures of of a, a greater reality to come. And so this word, refuge, is to bring up into our minds that Old Testament type of the cities of refuge. Where God says you're going to have three of them on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west side of the Jordan. He says it this way in Numbers chapter 35. You shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you so that The manslayer who kills another person without intent. In other words, not first degree murder. But manslaughter. Unintentionally. So that that person who kills another person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you. A refuge from the avenger. So this was this merciful provision that that God gave for His people, for anyone who essentially would get in a car accident and kill somebody. And it was their boo-boo. Or their donkey accidentally runs someone over. And that dead man's family wants revenge. They're coming to get you. And so God provided particular cities for such where they won't be allowed to take their vengeance on you. In Deuteronomy 19, he said it this way. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there, one of the cities of refuge, may save his life. So, in this Old Testament type, the one who was guilty of manslaughter, if he wanted to save his life, he had to personally pack his bags and flee to the appointed city in order to find safety, refuge. These cities were a spiritual picture of refuge that God has provided for sinners to flee for protection from the revenge. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, from the... Wrath of God. And in life, in the Old Testament, people aren't walking around all the time thinking about the cities of refuge personally because I haven't run anybody over. But once in a while, a bad accident does happen. And someone dies. Now their mind is focused. On what's the closest city of refuge. Because I accidentally killed that guy's wife. And so with earnestness. Packs his bags. Flees to the nearest city of refuge. For shelter. For protection. as a safe place. And so also with us in here. All of us by nature are children of God's wrath. We who in our natural sinful condition of spiritual death, we at one time walked around and concerned ourselves with cities of refuge. We We had a false comfort. That's not for me, even if someone talked about him. Okay, that's great to know. And then the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and our guilt. And we are mercifully filled with fear, with a dread. Oh, no. Until then the Spirit causes us to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Like the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, just filled with dread, don't you see it? No, his wife and his daughter, not yet, in the second half they will. They don't see it. And all he sees is eternal life. I need eternal and he flees. The answer from heaven is, flee for refuge by laying hold of the hope that is set before you. And we have if we are in Christ. So that's the we that he's referring to. And then that brings us to verses 19 and 20, where the writer now is unfolding what that hope is. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, what's the anchor? The answer is, it's the hope. We have this referring to hope as an anchor of the soul. So let's just make sure we clarify his word hope here first. Because sometimes hope is used by us human beings to refer to a subjective feeling. Like, I sure hope Notre Dame could beat a high school team like Stanford. But that doesn't mean I got this great surety. It means, oh, my team wins. I'm, what am I telling you? I'm telling you something about me and my feeling. That's all it does that would not be an anchor. That would not be something reliable and steadfast. Hope is also often used of some future objective reality that is to come in the Bible like this. As you have seen him go away and be caught up in the clouds, he shall return on that day. That's the hope. Subjective has nothing to do with what I feel. It's a promise. And verse 18 of our text is crystal clear about what the context means by hope it says we are to have we are to have strong encouragement to something else to what to hold fast to the hope and there it is set before us in front of us out there The the hope is something future, real, in front of us. Heaven, second coming, all of that wrapped up. The hope in verse 18, then, that hope, there is what he's calling an anchor of the soul. Big massive piece of iron with hooks on it that you can drop from a ship and hope it grabs hold of rock and then and it's secure. In other words, what anchors our soul in the storms of life with dangerous rocks all around us is not our subjective. Confidence, where some days it's high, some days it's low. It's not the hope he's referring to. The hope is the sure, objective reality that God has promised. And he has purchased with the life and the death and the resurrection of his son. This is our anchor. This is what we are to ongoingly lay hold of. This is why he describes the anchor is sure. It, it's steadfast, it's reliable. The chain is not going to break the anchor has grabbed hold. It wasn't our doing. It was Jesus's. So watch the picture that he he paints. Life, as we'll sing in a number of minutes, is like being a ship in very stormy weather a rocky coastline right there and you lower the anchor to the bottom and it grabs hold it's steadfast it's sure you're not going to make shipwreck of your faith the anchors lowered then he he, he flips the picture It's lowered, going to the bottom of the ocean. And then he says, it enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And it's clearly, he means, the curtain, the big, thick, five-inch curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle. And in the Holy of Holies. In that most holy places where the Ark of the Covenant was. The big box with the Ten Commandments in it. And the mercy seat of gold hammered out. And the cherubim hammered out in gold. On top of it. It was the place where no one could enter except the high priest, on one day a year the, year, the day of atonement, in order to bring the blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. The Holy of Holies was a very dangerous place. So then, why is it good? That our hope is anchored there inside the Holy of Holies. We're all sinners. I mean, it would be good if that were a safe place. It would be good if it were a refuge. When you read Moses... And even in historical books, we're not even bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to get it back into the Holy of Holies, you know, and uh, us is just trying to help. And he touches the Ark to steady it. And he's struck dead. And, And if you don't do things appropriately, Moses lets us know, and we have examples. Judgment falls. In death. So what's the point in saying that our hope is an anchor that is hooked into the holy of holies, where God's presence dwells? That's what verse twenty unfolds. Goes behind the curtain, where. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Behind the curtain, into the Holy of Holies, Jesus has gone. This word here is a forerunner, ahead of us. Why? For us. That's what He means, on our behalf. Which means we will enter that presence with Him someday. He's our forerunner. He did it on our behalf, meaning he accomplished something there for us that has made God's presence not a terror, but a refuge, a safe place. That's what he means by Jesus is. Our high priest. He's our representative, but much different than all the high priests that went before him in Israel, in the Levitical system. Remember what he's already told us in chapter 5? Because of this, he, the earthly high priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And in chapter 7, he will go on to say about Jesus, Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so Jesus is a priest, a high priest, unendingly forever. Chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He, Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. And we know all of their offerings were but a picture, not the reality. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 10 verse 4, It is... Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. Jesus entered into the real, immaterial, spirit world, which is God Himself, into the holy of holies with His own blood on the mercy seat and his high priesthood will never ever end he was our sacrifice he was the lamb of God as our substitution in order to satisfy justice not an animal He was raised from the dead to everlasting, indestructible human life so that His atoning work for us will be permanent, unending, last forever. This is what He means when verse 20 says, Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek so our hope our anchor our future is sure it's steadfast because of the finished work of Jesus it's his blood That has made God's presence. It's made God's justice. A safe place. For guilty sinners. A refuge. To which we have fled. We don't go into the holy of holies alone. Based on our own lives. We enter with Jesus, our forerunner. Now down here, right now, in this mortal life, on this side of the grave, there are those, according to the text, who have, past tense, fled for refuge to safety from God's just condemnation and wrath. They have entered into the experience and part of the presence of God even though they still carry with their new regenerated life an old sinful nature. There's so much more to come That's the hope that anchors our soul. Jesus has been raised bodily from the dead. And He has, in His perfect human righteousness, entered into the inner place behind the curtain in heaven as our forerunner. And so one day in the future, we shall also in that sense enter with Him. We'll be raised to bodily life from the dead. And then, we'll have Jesus' righteousness. Which is, right now, has already been Imputed to us, put to our account, before God, our record is His righteousness, not our sin. But then, we will have that righteousness, not only imputed, but infused into us. We will be without sin without any remnants of it, without any possibility of ever committing it again, because Jesus put it away. And His righteousness and human life that He lived for us, which is put to the account of anyone who will believe in Jesus, right now, it will transform their very existence from the inside out forever that's the hope our hope it's anchored behind the curtain it is not ever coming loose but what about the other end of the chain to that i want to read a paragraph from John Piper in his book, The Godward Life, Volume 1, because his poetic way says it so well. Quote, Does the other end of the anchor rope dangle out of heaven and lay limp and unfastened across the deck of our souls? Or did Christ's blood purchase security At both ends of the anchor. Is the anchor of our souls bound as firmly to us as it is in heaven? The answer of the book of Hebrews is that the anchor is secure at both ends. Yes, we we must hold fast to the anchor, but the good news is that our holding fast was secured by the blood of Jesus. We know this because the blood of Jesus is the blood of the New Covenant. And what the New Covenant promised was that God would secure our salvation at the top in heaven and at the bottom, us, the ship. The new covenant promised that God would not only forgive and accept those who love Him, but also that He would see to it that we love Him. That we walk in His statutes and fear Him and not turn away from Him. What Jesus died When Jesus died, He purchased by His blood the promises of the new covenant. This cup, He said at the Last Supper, is the new covenant in, by, my blood. End quote. I mean, Piper's, I think, clearly right. Because this is what we've been seeing for the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews. Remember back at verse 9, chapter 6. Though we speak in this way that there are those who are false Christians within church life, although we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And we've seen that the better things that belong to salvation is persevering in faith to the end and not falling away. In other words, what belongs to salvation is not just coming to faith, but it's persevering in faith. That's what belongs to salvation. That's part of Christ's work that He purchased for us. Salvation is not, in other words, an anchored chain that grabs hold in the holy of holies, but then the ship of our life is utterly and only dependent upon whether we can hold the chain. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Not according to this author. The better things belong to salvation, including the chain being secured to the ship of our lives. Would you just, just one more? I can go numbers of texts that we've seen over the last numbers of months. But chapter 3, verse 6, one simple sentence where he said, and we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is where you just slow down and you, you, you respect the grammar. Think about it. It doesn't say we will become... His house, if we hold fast to that chain with an anchor at the end. doesn't say that. It says we are, right now, His house. Present tense. If indeed, in the future, we hold fast to our hope. So, to hold fast is not the cause of becoming His house. It's the effect. It's it's the proof that the chain has been tied to the ship of our souls. And it'll never be untied. The anchor of our souls is secured to us just as it is secured behind the curtain in the holy of holies. So someone then would ask, well, then, if our holy fast is sure, if Christ purchased that, and therefore it can never come loose. Then why does verse 18 encourage us believers to hold fast, hold tight to the hope that's set before you? And the answer is what we've just seen by Jesus' work. What Jesus' purchase for us was not the, the freedom from having to embrace Christ. He didn't, he didn't purchase the freedom from, you don't have to hope. What he, what he purchased was the enabling power to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Jesus did not purchase the eradication of our human wills. As though we, we didn't need to hear commandments. Hold fast. And that we didn't need to use our wills to hold fast. That's not what He purchased. The wiping of that out. He purchased the empowering of our Will so that we would love God, love the hope set before us, and hold fast to this great objective promise. Christianity, at its core, is not a philosophy, it's not merely a world view it's a miracle it's a miracle of miracles where dead zombie people spiritually to God are brought to new life and they're different than they were before it produces in them otherworldly hope and that hope is a is a hope that causes the world out there to think christians are crazy and in our present culture right now in america in california In Los Angeles, to be a hope-filled, Bible-believing Christian is to be accused of all kinds of horrific things in a way that was not true for the first 30 years of my Christianity. No wonder Jesus told us, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, hold fast to the hope. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Right now, in our time, this very day, to be a... Hope-filled, Bible-stickler. Believing Christian means to be accused of being an intolerant, hate-mongering bigot. Because you will say, homosexuality is sinful. All of it. You will say those who affirm the, the, the brokenness, the God-belittlingness of sin, of those who call themselves transgender, what you'll say that is evil. And you're a bigot. For some, this hope is meant over the last couple of years being arrested and thrown into jail for simply doing what we're doing right now. Holding church services against the will of overreaching government officials. Not us here, but others have been thrown in jail because of that. It is a hope that must go deep behind the curtain. So that you'll be willing to lose your job, your reputation, your standing in the community. Instead of mouthing the doctrines of the atheistic, secular, Christ-hating, Scripture-hating culture that is permeating. K through 12 colleges and universities mainstream media sports pop culture movie industry governments everywhere we need a hope it goes beyond the other side of the curtain Because we cannot be an individual Christian or corporate group of Christians that would ever deny that there is a God and He judges. And that there is only one way any person can be saved. And that is through Jesus Christ. Whether that person is a Muslim, a Jew, an atheist, a Buddhist, Christ, in Christ alone. We cannot be a people who would deny that God created humanity as a binary. Male, And female, he created them. We cannot deny that marriage is God's idea. He created it, and it's defined as between one man and one woman. We must hold to the reality that there is either a male or a female, and it's determined by their biology hate the doctrine of affirming the destruction of these souls. We must be against the murder of babies in the womb. Even though I saw my governor on a commercial watching football yesterday, basically interpreted was clear. Vote whatever that proposition was for this one so we can keep killing babies in California freely. In short, we must stand for Christ, for truth. And don't ever be deceived by other Christian voices. That will mean standing for the clarity of what the Scripture teaches on these issues. And the strength and the power for us to do that, it's found in the hope that enters behind the curtain in the presence of God. Now, I'm going to read a short little story to help our hope by the model of one as many have gone before us. This is from Carl Olson in his book, Passion. In the late 17th century in Southern France, a girl named Maria Durant was brought before the authorities charged with the Huguenot heresy. Essentially French, which is all Roman Catholic. Okay. Huguenot, in other words, she was a Calvinist. She was 14 years old, bright, attractive, marriageable. She was asked to abjure, meaning renounce the Huguenot faith. She was not asked to commit an immoral act, to become a criminal or even to change the day-to-day quality of her behavior. She was only asked to say, Je absure. No more, no less. She did not comply. Together, with 30 other Huguenot women, she was put into a tower by the sea. For 38 years, she continued. And instead of the, the, the hated word, je she, together with her fellow martyrs, scratched on the wall of the prison tower the single word, resist. The word is still seen and gaped at by tourists on the stone wall at that tower. He goes on to make this comment. We do not understand the terrifying simplicity of a religious commitment which asks nothing of time and gets nothing from time. We can understand a religion which enhances time, but we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and summer into autumn, to feel the slow systemic changes within one's flesh, the drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the suffering of the joints, the slow deterioration of the senses. To feel all this and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and to endure. So in in the face of the loss of freedoms that we once knew, in the face of of an anti-Christ, totalitarian culture in government, stand. Stand firm. Why? Because we have fled... We fled for refuge. And thus we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a, a steadfast anchor of our souls. It's a hope that, that enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as our forerunner, having become for us a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Let us pray. Let us then sing it. Father, thank you for Such a gift is your wonderful, beautiful, glorious, saving Son. We thank you for the work and the person of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our souls and in the midst of the body. Without you, we can do nothing with you. We have a hope, sure and steadfast. To the glory of your Son. Amen. Amen.